This is another episode of the Home Hero Podcast. Today we have Josh Luke on the show. Uh, Josh, welcome. Thanks for having me, Mike. Appreciate it. Yeah, we're excited to chat today. Uh, Josh, can you give us a little bit about your your background and where you're calling in from and and uh, who you are? Sure. Yeah. Well, again, thanks for having me. My name's uh, Josh Luke. Uh, I'm a junk faculty at the University of Southern California, Price School of Public Policy. I founded the National Readmission Prevention Collaborative as well as the National Bundle Payment Collaborative, and that's after uh, 10 years as a hospital CEO and, and health system vice president, and I've also spent some time in my career uh, overseeing nursing homes and different levels of post-acute care, including acute rehab, uh, home health services, and hospice. And uh, in 2015, authored the best-selling book of the year for the American College of Healthcare Executives, which was uh, called Readmission Prevention, Solutions Across the Provider Continuum, uh, which is uh, available online at ACHE.org, and really was written as a handbook or a guide for uh, healthcare executives and practitioners at all levels of care, whether acute or post-acute. So uh, thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, definitely. And I'm, I'm here with my co-host, uh, Stephen Richmond. Hello. Stephen is our communications manager at Home Hero and does a lot of behind-the-scenes work as to uh, create our brand messaging and, and uh, um, work with a lot of the hospital partners and brands. So I uh, want to get him involved in the conversation as well. Josh, you've seen a lot of things over the years and being uh, CEO at hospitals, um, working with other country, uh, countries, companies. Where do you sort of see the, the high-level macro trend of healthcare, maybe specifically as it relates to the specialty of post-acute? Well, I think that's a great question, and <clears throat> there's probably a long answer to that. But the reality is the federal government has a, an insurance system that pays for those that are 65 and older that, that contributed to the fund as workers, as American citizens, uh, earlier in their life. It's called Medicare, as you know. And that Medicare fund is running dry at an alarming rate, which is really what led to health care reform. Uh, Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act of 2010, which is uh, the shorter name is the Affordable Care Act, and a lot of people refer to it as Obamacare, um, really is an attempt to uh, prioritize uh, healthy lifestyles and healthy living in America and to get away from what I would call reactionary health care, which is, which is just treating and dealing with health issues uh, once we become ill or injured. Uh, there really hasn't been a whole lot of focus, at least in the last uh, 40 years in this country, uh, from a healthcare perspective on, on living healthy. It's been more of a niche, um, healthy lifestyle, um, I, I don't know what you would call it, a business model that really was separate from healthcare. And the Affordable Care Act, in large part, is a move towards uh, combining those two uh, industries, which is, which is healthy living and lifestyles with healthcare, and making them into one with the assumption that if, if Americans are living healthier and, and obesity goes down and there's better diet trends and there's more exercise, then health care spending will go down accordingly. So that really is one of the major uh, initiatives of the Affordable Care Act is for Americans to live healthier and, and as a result. Mm, yeah, that, that's a good point and, and, and a good perspective on it. Now, some of, the, some of the critics of the proposal generally say that it's a reform of insurance, but underneath the hood doesn't change much of the cost and the efficiency of the overall system. Um, it feels to me that it's a, while it's a very complex and overarching issue, that it's generally going in the right direction. Um, how do you look at it in terms of the efficiency of the initial uh, bill that was passed in 
and how far off the mark or how far do you think we have to go before we have a, a really respectable and efficient healthcare system? Well, time this transition, it's going to take a few years. Um, you know, the fee-for-service model, which is the model that we in America have been utilizing to reimburse uh, hospitals and other providers as well as physicians, essentially since World War II, um, as the practitioners and providers learn this model better, they realize that the more they institutionalize patients in a hospital or in a nursing home, uh, the more financially viable that model was for the provider or the physician. And of course, you're always going to have those uh, that minority of, of uh, providers and doctors that, that, that play bad and that, that built the system and it ruins it for everyone. And unfortunately, uh, that was an emerging trend and so that led to reform. Essentially, um, the Affordable Care Act is, is a, a means to get back to where doctors, hospitals, and providers along the continuum all share in the same goal of getting helping people live healthier lifestyles and really they're trying to find a model that incentivizes everyone that will make more money uh, if they're keeping people healthy and out of those facilities. So it's been a very slow transition. The 2015 was a year of mandates where instead of recommending and suggesting things, the federal government started mandating hospitals and doctors participate in these programs. So I think you're going to see a much quicker shift uh, over the next few years than you've seen the last few years. Yeah, that's, a, that's, that's really interesting. I fully agree with you. And one thing I've observed in just seeing the culture of CEOs at some of these uh, major payment and, not payment, uh, provider and, and payer uh, facilities and organizations is kind of the, um, you know, like we, we'll chat about is, is the reluctancy to make changes. Um, you know, understand these organizations are very large and they, they serve a lot of people with so it's something that's very important. Do you think that there's a, uh, an issue with the culture across the board with a lot of these executives at, at, at some of these uh, uh, payer and provider organizations that, you know, is kind of unfortunately weighing down on, on patients now because they're reluctant to uh, change or be open to innovation? Or do you think that that's spot on? Because it does seem to me that there is... Um, you know, it's hard to push things through, um, get pilots done for, for new companies, and especially new startup and tech companies as they start to solve some of these um, problems in healthcare. You know, we need uh, executives that are open to uh, experimenting and trying out uh, pilot programs to, to see if there does, see if they do move the needle. Um, would you agree with that and say that there, there are executives out there who really we need to undergo a culture shift? No doubt about it. I mean, the fee-for-service area, as we just talked about, was a, was a model where hospital operators really were trained just to put heads in beds in any way, shape, or form they could because that's what drove revenue, and, and those behaviors don't just change overnight. So um, there, it, there's definitely been a slow adaptation. Uh, as a result of the mandates I mentioned, you're going to start to see more um, transformation and innovation in the next uh, couple months. You're starting to hear about partnerships all over the country, you know, a couple of years ago, it was, hey, hospitals thinking maybe we should partner with skilled nursing, and then it was maybe we should partner with home health agencies. And now um, you're seeing an emerging trend where they're partnering with organizations like Home Hero that uh, traditionally are, are referred to as private duty uh, nursing or, or non-medical home care. Um, those services, home care, non-medical, and private duty, much like assisted living, traditionally were referred to by the federal government as non-health care services, and they used to make comments like, for assisted living, well, we can't pay rent with uh, medical insurance dollars, or we can't pay for a caretaker or a babysitter who's not medical. 
uh, with medical insurance dollars. And over the last 10 years, you've seen a, a shift away from that because there's a lot of research and studies that show that these quote-unquote non-medical approaches to helping people improve their health are significantly reducing healthcare spending. So although traditionally they weren't viewed as, as healthcare services, uh, now people have opened up their mind, people being uh, the insurer or the payer as well as the, the hospital and the provider, to say, hey, if this is going to help keep people healthier and reduce our spending uh, to care for these patients, then we absolutely should be employing a model that includes it, and you're seeing that nationwide. And if um, if those two initiatives sound familiar, it's because they're two of the three pillars in the triple aim of healthcare, which of healthcare reform, uh, which CMS is uh, director nationally, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, Andy Slavitt, for years now has said is the overall goal of healthcare reform, the triple aim is improved efficiency and cost in delivering health, number one, and number two, healthier uh, lifestyles for uh, Americans, and number three, uh, doing so at a reduced cost. So triple aim is something that's on the top of mind for everyone as we transition from a, uh, a volume-based model to a value-based model. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, I, I think there's, if you almost take a step back and look at the history of, of where we came from, you know, even starting from the 40s, 50s, 60s, when Medicare was first enacted, um, you know, even if you rewind the clock 100 years, I'm always fascinated by how U.S. presidents have passed away, because that generally gives you an indication as to the most, uh, the highest form of health care at the time. And seeing, you know, George Washington, uh, Roosevelt, a lot of these guys died from earaches and colds. And there was no such thing as hospitals or centralized buildings that people go to, you know, and they started to develop around like, you know, early 20th century to the 20s, 30s. It wasn't until I think the 40s where the U.S. government started to reimburse uh, hospital groups for having patients in there um, on sort of a national federal level. And I think when the, the... overflow from hospitals, especially in the senior population, started to happen. Um, you know, hospitals just had people in there for so long that they started to build secondary hospitals or nursing homes. And in many ways, the nursing home industry in the United States and across the world even, but especially in the U.S., is is looked at or initially created as overflow from hospitals. So you, you can notice that there's two people in a room, there's ugly convalescent lights. It's not meant to be a, a pleasurable place to live. But I think if you if you fast forward to today, people are living so long due to you know advanced technology and uh, medicine medicine application that we have. I think as a culture, we're in this really interesting point of thinking: How do you handle seniors? You know, if you're 70 years old and you have another 30 years to live, um, you know, I think the country and, and sort of the world as a whole is at this really interesting point to decide: How do you handle, or where do where should folks go uh, towards the end of their life? Should they go into a convalescent home? Assisted living facilities were initially created to be a very uh, comforting place to live out the rest of your life, and it was supposed to be indefinitely. You know, that's the place you you sort of end up, and it's a community of people. And one of the things at Home Hero, as you know, Josh, you've been thinking about is keeping people at home uh, in a way that's sustainable and and it doesn't have to go to a facility afterwards. Um, and I think people's a lot of times people come to us and they say, you know, we're deciding between putting the parents in a facility or keeping them at home with a caregiver. And I just, you know, I, I believe so strongly that staying at home um, and having a having a workforce of, of efficient caregivers that can keep people at home and and safely um, is just such a better way to live. And it's kind of unfortunate the way that nursing homes developed. Um, do, do you see any shifts there in terms of 
some of these uh, uh, organizations, maybe hospital groups or insurance companies specifically, starting to, like you alluded to, change their mentality on reimbursing for home care? Because right now, majority of home care is all private pay in most states, and until it starts to get reimbursed by uh, in insurance companies, private and and uh, and Medicare, it's it's going to be a really difficult thing for families to pay for, and. Um, you know, it is a very expensive thing, so that's the challenge, you know. It's, it's how do you pay for it, but also um, it is an inevitable piece. I think people should stay at home. Um, do you start to see that shifts in any way um, across insurance companies and folks that you interact with? Yeah. I think it's, it's interesting you bring that up, you know. Um, I think in the last year we've started to see uh, a lot more aggressive innovations and, and, and uh, partnerships with both payers and the acute hospital. You know, I'm familiar with one health system in particular that actually bought franchises for a private duty or home care organization because they saw that that an outside agency could better manage it than a larger health system. But they also said, hey, we want to own it. We want the revenue. We want it to be co-branded with us, uh, but we know it will never be great unless we uh, handle an outside expert to do it, somebody like Home Hero. Uh, and so you're starting to see those trends. I know a couple of years ago, Memorial Care down here in Southern California took a similar approach with skilled nursing where they created an independent third party um, to help them manage patients in the skilled nursing. Uh, you see organizations that got out of traditional medical home health services, health systems that did that in the 90s but closed it in the 2000s because it either wasn't profitable or just didn't produce a high enough margin. You're seeing them get back into providing home health and now Believe it or not, they're also opening non-medical private duty home care service lines to complement that. All the incentives in the ACA are starting to point towards um, that home care and private duty. You can provide a lot more services than you can in traditional home health. You can uh, do it at a much more affordable cost. Uh, Your dollar goes a lot further, a lot more hours in the day. Um, You can just look at companies like uh, Gentiva that was purchased by Kindred last year. You know, they've expanded their... Um, medical home health model into Kindred at Home, which is also home care, because they understand um, that, that the federal push is not just for uh, the triple aim, which is cost efficiency, um, but let's really look at a, a point that most most people in the post-acute sector have not recognized and need to start looking at. The federal government believes that the patient should only have to visit one level of post-acute care when they leave the hospital. And traditionally, that is not at all how post-acute providers have looked at it. In fact, they said, hey, once you're done with your two or three weeks here in a skilled nursing facility, we're going to send you home, but we're going to uh, refer you to a home health agency um, that can provide you services at home to ensure it's a safe tradition. The federal government looks like that, looks at that as a failure of the skilled nursing facility to fulfill its obligation because it fulfills the, it feels the obligation of every level of post-acute care is the same. That goal is simple. We're paying for post-acute care so you as a post-acute provider can get this patient healthy and strong enough to go home on their own safely. And that doesn't and shouldn't require another level of care. When you talk about home care and non-medical private duty nursing, that's not considered traditionally a quote-unquote level of post-acute care. And so as the model shifts, what you're going to see is skilled nursing Stop referring to home health unless it's an absolute requirement or unless the, the patient doesn't have the resources to pay for it uh, because they're going to start being penalized 
for referring patients from skilled nursing to home health services. So you're going to see a massive shift, not just from the hospital, but from skilled nursing in pairs as well. So at least ask the patient if they have the resources to pay for private duty or home care before they automatically default to uh, traditional home health services. And remember, those traditional home health services are limited and caps just like every other insurance services. So with, with home care, you don't run into that. Uh, with Home Hero, I know if there's a need and uh, your caretakers or your heroes, as you call them, are, are uh, legally allowed to provide that service, you guys will meet that need. And that's one of the things that I really like about home care and about what you guys are doing at Home, home Hero. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's another great perspective there. Um, you know, one of the really interesting things I learned at the J.P. Morgan conference uh, earlier this year, when you listen to a lot of these executives at major uh, health plans, is there is admittedly a lot of chaos. And it's been said multiple times throughout the conference that where there's great chaos, there's great opportunity. And I think we're going to have quite a few listeners that are sitting on the outside of the fence uh, probably entrepreneurs, startup guys that work in tech. And healthcare, I think, traditionally has had a, a very few successful uh, tech companies come into the, into the market. And I think one of the difficult parts is navigating this space, particularly the politics, and, and getting enough traction to go through and maybe do a pilot or, or launch. Um, you really have to have some momentum, some serious momentum, in order to work with a lot of these organizations. And just thinking about the, the type of strategy or the type of um, founding team or, or their approach into healthcare, um, you know, when, when, when folks ask me and for advice on, on getting into the space and um, starting a company here, it's, it's, it's always a challenge for me to give them advice because every piece of the healthcare uh, uh, challenge or every piece of it is so different. Um, you know, Josh, I know we've chatted. There haven't been too many tech companies that have really taken off in healthcare. Do you have any overarching piece of advice for uh, startup founders out there that are listening, thinking, boy, I'd love to build a company and, and fix some of the problems in our healthcare space today, um, but are just kind of daunted by the overall challenges of it all? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting perspective. I mean, you don't see a lot of venture capital going into the post-acute space, but the one area that you do see uh, venture capital being infused in, in, in large part is in the non-medical home care space. And, and I think that shows the intelligence of the venture capital community. While telehealth and remote monitoring are booming, we're running into a lot of roadblocks and operational um, issues as it pertains to implementing uh, remote monitoring and telehealth, not just in the hospital, but also in the skilled nursing facility and also in the home. And let me give you an example of that even when you can figure out someone who's willing to pay for it, because remember, not, not many folks are reimbursed for purchasing the technology. They might be reimbursed for the procedure, uh, but they're not reimbursed for purchasing the technology at any level of care at present. So once you can convince somebody to actually put up the dollars, the capital to pay for the technology, then the real issue is training employees. And, and home-based employees can be very difficult to train because they're often spread out throughout the region or, out the country, or throughout the country. So operationalizing remote monitoring and telehealth has been very difficult. And that's just one example of, yes, there's chaos and there's opportunity. Yes, you're starting to see the federal government reimbursed more for that. But there's still a number of challenges to get there. And I still think we're a few years away from really mastering uh, the opportunity that is that is remote health care, um, such as that was just discussed. So when you look at other technologies that are out there, softwares, you're not getting a huge uh, um, 
volume of adopters, of early adopters for sure, but what you are seeing early adopters in is transitioning um, to a model where they avoid the Smith if possible, uh, they avoid home health if possible, and they try to get the patient home, because let's be realistic, uh, every American wants to age and heal at home. No one wants to go to a convalescent home. You know, they've come up with all these fun, fancy names for convalescent homes, but the reality is it's a nursing home. It's You can call it skilled nursing, you can call it rehab, you can call it whatever you want. It's a convalescent home, and I still have yet to meet an American who says, I just can't wait till the day I can go to a convalescent home. So, so you know, those are the things people are starting to think about. And now that not only are, are Americans' pri- preferences aligned with uh, the reimbursement model, but health systems are saying, hey, if we can send this patient home, and if we have a partner who's competent to do it, um, then, then let's consider that. And one of the things that really stands out to me about Home Hero is the commitment Home Heroes made on uh, policy and procedure that best position you to be able to meet the needs of patients, even though those aren't things that are required within your industry as they are in a hospital or in a nursing home. And I really commend Kyle and, and, and Mike, you and your team for for taking those steps and doing those things. So I think they're big steps, and they're definitely the first things that uh, a hospital or an insurance company is going to look for if they are considering partnering with a home care company. Yeah, that the really means a lot comes from, coming from someone like you, Josh, and we're, we're really excited to um, move forward in our space and really kind of achieve those goals and really change how people approach post-acute care and really just aging smarter in place. Um, but that's about all the time we've got for our show today. And one of the things we like to do when we uh, wrap up our show is just ask a fun, open-ended question. So for you, Josh, if you had a billboard right in the middle of, like, downtown L.A., you know, got millions of people seeing it every day, what would you put on it? Always remember that you have a right to age and heal at home. And when you're in the hospital... And a doctor is using words like we need to transfer you or, or discharge you to this other facility. Uh, exercise your right to question that. Say, hey, yeah. doc, I'd really prefer to can heal at home. Is that an option? And, and more often than not, the, the reality is it's always an option because as Americans, you'll always have choice. Feel empowered to ask those questions and be educated. So uh, thanks again, Mike and Steve, for having me on. You can learn more about me at joshluke.org or on LinkedIn or at nationalbundlepaymentcollaborative.com. And uh, I appreciate the opportunity to share with your listeners. Yeah, thank you, Josh. Really appreciate you having on the show. Anytime, bud. Bye-bye.